Book Three, Chapter Fourteen, Part One, of Tasker Jevons: The Real Story by Mason Clare. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Book Three, His Book, Chapter Fourteen, Part One. We had breakfast very early the next morning, for Jevons was under orders to start at eight o'clock for Termonde. We had a table reserved for us in a corner of the restaurant the hotel was full of belgian officers and i found i was infinitely better off in attaching myself to jevons than if i had joined the war correspondence viola i may say that her rig-out which jevons had admired so much the khaki tunic and breeches made us terribly conspicuous had come down in a contrite mood i heard her telling jevons that he must be kind to me for i had had an awful time with her and i had been an angel Well i had had an awful time i don't think i remember ever having had a worse time than the hours i had spent in her company since she had laid into me on tuesday evening but i had not been an angel far from it looking back on those hours i can see that i behaved to her like a perfect brute she had her revenge one of those revenges that are the more triumphant because they are unpremeditated she had dished me as a war correspondent for i declare that from the moment when we found jevons and his general in the hotel i became the victim of her miserable point of view i could only see the war through jevons and as a part of jevons i might have said like viola that to me ghent was jevons and belgium was jevons and the war was jevons i suppose i saw as much of the war from first to last as any special correspondent at the front and i know that barring the siege of antwerp the three weeks when jimmy was in it were by no means the most important or the most thrilling weeks in the war and of the one event the siege of antwerp i didn't see as much as i ought to have seen being most terribly handicapped by viola and yet perhaps a little because of viola but infinitely more because of jevons those three weeks stand out in my memory before the battles of the Aisne and marne and the long fight for calais because of jevons i have made them figure in the columns of the morning standard and elsewhere with a superior vividness even now when i recall them i seem to have lived with jevons in flanders through long periods of time i have the proof of my obsession before me in a letter from the editor of the morning standard dated october the twelfth he says we are interested of course in anything relating to mr tasker jevons and his performances seem to have been remarkable you have written a very fine account of mele which i understand is a small village four and a half miles from ghent but there are other events the fall of antwerp for instance well we got the story of the fall of antwerp all right but jimmy wrote it for me it was the last thing he did write yes he had only three weeks of it all told he went out on tuesday september the twenty second and he came back to us on tuesday october the thirteenth it was his infernal luck that he should have had no more of it and yet i don't know i don't see how he could have held out much longer at his pitch of intensity three weeks would have been nothing to any other man but jevons could do more with three weeks than another man could do with a three years campaign and he contrived to crowd into his term the maximum of glory and of risk and when it was all over it was less as if fate had foiled him than as if he had given himself three weeks but jimmy was discontented and every morning at breakfast we listened to the most extraordinary lamentations his job he said wasn't at all the jolly thing it looked for he was under orders the whole blessed time 
He'd no more freedom, hadn't Jimmy, than that poor devil of a waiter. He'd got to go or to stay where a fussy old ram of a colonel sent him. So here he was in Ghent, an open city, when he wanted to be in Antwerp. He hadn't been anywhere, anywhere at all. As for what he'd done, he couldn't see what the fuss was all about. He hadn't done anything. He'd seen a little fight in a turnip field, and a little squabble for a bridge you could blow up today and build again tomorrow, and a little tin-pot town peppered. And look at the war. Just look at the war. And when we tried to cheer him up with the prospect of a second Waterloo, the Waterloo that all the war correspondents said was coming off next week, he refused to listen to what he called our putrid gabble. There wouldn't be any Waterloo next week or the week after, he said. There won't be any Waterloo for another two years, if then. He wasn't always lugubrious. It was only when he thought that he was missing the siege of Antwerp that his happiness was incomplete. It was on our third morning when he rushed off joyously, to Catrecht, I think, that I said to Viola, you thought it would hurt him more than other people. You needn't have come out after him. You see how much is hurting him. I'm glad I came, she said. I don't mind as long as I can see. Do you remember him telling Reggie that he wouldn't be in the war because he was a coward? Don't you wish Reggie could see him now? She didn't answer, and I saw that there was still a sting for her in Reggie's name. The war might have made her forgive him, but there were things that the war couldn't wipe out from her memory. And there was her own rather appalling injustice to Jimmy. I wondered whether she was thinking of how she had tried to stop his going to the front and how she had said he didn't want to go. But I had to own that she had done the best thing for her peace of mind by coming out. My peace of mind, I was told quite frankly, didn't matter. Jevons, though he admitted that I couldn't have stopped her coming out, made me responsible for her presence at the seat of war. The trouble was that she insisted on following him wherever he went. And as it wasn't to be expected that he would take her with him into the tight places that he managed to get into in his own car, I had to have her in mind. Not that Viola consented to my putting it that way. It was clear that she made herself mistress of the situation when she obtained possession of that car and maneuvered, as I am sure she did maneuver, for my own failure with the firm that supplied it. On our first morning in Ghent we came to what she called an understanding, when she rubbed it well into me that it was her own car and her own chauffeur that she had brought out, and that the man was under her orders, not mine. If I liked to come with her, why, of course I could. Otherwise, I could go halves with one of the other correspondents in one of their cars. But she pointed out that I could hardly do better than come with her, for by simply following Jimmy, I should get nearer to the firing line than anybody else. She had assumed that the firing line was the goal of every war correspondent's ambition. I would find, she said, that it would work quite well. It did. It worked better than if I had gone halves with the other correspondent. For at this time, war correspondents were not greatly loved by the military authorities, and they were having considerable difficulty in getting near anything, and the time, Jimmy said, was coming when they would be cleared neck and crop out of Belgium. My astute sister-in-law had calculated on this, and on her own part in it. If you'll only trust me, Wally, she said the first day we started, when all the correspondents in the hotel had turned out to see us off, you'll find that I'm your providence and not your curse. I can get you through where you'd never get yourself. Just look at those men, how sick they are. I said I thought it would be only decent to take two or three of them with us. We had room. But Viola was firm. She said it would be most indecent. We should want all the room we had for our wounded. 
do you suppose i'm going to shivvy jimmy about without doing anything to help him as for you you've only to sit tight and do what you're told you'll be all right as long as we follow jimmy and so we followed him my god what a chase but viola's little chauffeur was game and we followed though jimmy had made elaborate arrangements for stopping his wife's progress at least two miles outside the danger zone she always managed to get through sentries colonels army medical officers she twisted them into coils round her little finger and cast them from her and got through and once through we were really quite useful in transporting wounded jevons and i between us managed to keep her out of the actual firing line by telling her she was in all of it there was and when we were loaded up with wounded there was no difficulty in getting her away and certainly it served my turn well enough though i was compelled to see the war through jimmy i saw the war by the end of our first week jimmy seemed to get used to being followed as a matter of course we had followed him to Elo and termont and Catrach and zele when we weren't following him we were near him somewhere working at the dressing stations or among the refugees then he did a mean thing he managed to get himself sent to antwerp for three days he sneaked off there by himself on the sunday and when we tried to follow him we were turned back at st nicholas just too late to see the british go through he had worked it this time when he got back from antwerp at the end of his three days we knew that something had happened something that he was keeping from us it wasn't only the fate of antwerp that was hanging over him as it hung over all of us in that awful second week it was as if he had seen something intimate and terrible that he couldn't talk about that night after viola had gone to her room he told me what had happened he had seen charlie thesiger's regiment at st nicholas on sunday and to-day which was tuesday he had seen charlie thesiger he had found him lying dangerously wounded in the british hospital at antwerp that he said was what had kept him there and he had brought him back with him to ghent he was in the couvent de saint pierre he thought perhaps it would be better not to tell viola just yet charlie didn't know he said that she was here the war was beginning to close round us the next day wednesday he announced that he was going to Zele, but he didn't he really didn't want me to take viola there i could go by myself of course if i liked though he didn't care about her being left but we did go viola's blood was up after what she called jimmy's meanness and there was no keeping her back we were a little uncertain of our way for following jimmy as we did or rather following the direction colville swore he had seen him start in took us much too far to the north we found ourselves on the antwerp road jammed in the traffic and caught by a stream of refugees we were obliged to turn back to ghent to get our bearings but the business of transporting women and children kept us on the antwerp road all morning and it was past two o'clock before we started for Zele. i remember this particular chase after jimmy for many reasons first we lost our way and never got to Zele at all down in the southeast on the skyline we saw a fleet of little clouds that seemed to be anchored to the earth and every cloud of the fleet was a smoke from a burning village west of the village was an enormous cloud blown by the wind across miles of sky viola was certain that the big cloud was Zela being burned to the ground and that jimmy would be burned with it when i told her that it wasn't likely that jimmy would stay in Zela when it was burning she said that i didn't know jimmy and anyhow it was there that she was going suddenly viola sat up very straight fernie is that guns i hear or thunder i said it was guns 
a deep and solemn booming came from before and behind us and on either side east and west we had rushed bang between the french and german batteries the big cloud turned out to be smoke from a factory that the belgians had set fire to themselves and in following it we had gone miles from Zele. now we followed the guns we turned east and struck off south and found ourselves in the village of belair the lines of fire seemed suddenly to narrow in on us here there was a clean path down the centre of the street for men and horses stood back close under the house walls on each side the place was full of soldiers one of them told us that we could get to Zele by going east through the village but as the road was being shelled he didn't advise us to try we went down that clean middle of the street we were safe enough as long as we ran between the houses but the village very soon came to an end and then in the open road we were in for it the fields dropped away from us on each side leaving us as naked to the german batteries as if we were running on a raised causeway at the bottom of the fields to our right there was a line of willows beyond the willows there was the river and behind the river bank on the further side were the german lines the grey smoke of their fire was still tangled in the willow tops colville drew up under the lee of the last house in the village he didn't like the look of that open road neither did i go on said viola what are you stopping for the guns ceased firing for a moment and we rushed it i do wish said viola you'd tuck your arm in fernie it's your right arm and you're on the wrong side of the car i asked her what made her think of my right arm just then because it's the only part of himself that jimmy ever thinks of she said there was about three-quarters of a mile of causeway and it ended in a little hamlet and the hamlet it had been knocked to bits before we got into it the hamlet ended in a hillock of bricks and mortar the road to Tsele was completely blocked well said colville i am blowed you've got to take it said viola sorry ma'am it can't be done you want a motor traction with caterpillar wheels for this business he was backing the car when a shell burst and buried itself in the place where we had stood to my horror i saw that viola had opened the door of the car and was getting out what on earth are you doing i said i'm going to walk to Tsele. i pulled her back and held her down in her seat by main force she was horribly strong and as she struggled with me she said quietly it's all right you two must go back and i must go to jimmy i shouted to colville turn her round can't you and get out of this he turned her he drew up deftly under the shelter of a barn that still stood intact then he spoke are you quite sure sir that mr jevons is in that place because sir i heard kendall say something this morning about their going to antwerp then why the devil didn't you say so i didn't think of it sir until i saw mrs jevons getting out he added by way of afterthought besides i promised kendall you and mrs jevons wasn't to know he was going on to antwerp viola and i looked at each other and burst out laughing somewhere behind us from beyond the river a gun boomed and we took no notice of it we went on laughing he's had us again she said yes we've been done this time well we'd better scoot we made a rush for it between guns and got to Air once we were out of the village and heading for the ghent road we were safe we were hardly out of sound of the guns when i heard viola saying you know it really was funny of jimmy i said he won't think it quite so funny when he hears what we've done he didn't think it funny at all he was furious when he heard what we'd done he forbade viola to follow him again he threatened to sack colville 
He said he'd have me sent home to morrow and kept there, and Viola should go with me. And when he'd finished, he told us that Antwerp had fallen. And that was how Jevons came to write the story of the fall of Antwerp instead of me. Well, he didn't sack Colville, and he didn't get me packed off with the other war correspondents who left Ghent in a body the next day. And he said nothing about sending Viola away. He did better than that. He told her he had brought Charlie Thesiger from Antwerp yesterday, and that her cousin was dying in the Couvin de Saint-Pierre, and that perhaps it would be a bit easier for him if she were with him. We took her to the convent that morning. On the way there, she asked Jimmy why he hadn't told her about Charlie yesterday. He said that up till midnight we weren't absolutely certain that Charlie wouldn't recover, and that she was safer with us in the hotel than she would be away from us in the convent. My safety is to be considered before everything, she said. He answered that it was surely enough for her if he risked it now. I can't think why she didn't see through him. I and Kendall and Colville knew perfectly well that he was taking her to the convent to be safe. I think he argued that if she had poor Charlie to look after, it would keep her quiet, and she would be out of mischief till it was time for the Germans to march into Ghent. So we took her to him. We found him in a little whitewashed cell that one of the sisters had given up to him. He lay under a crucifix on the nun's narrow bed, which was too short for him, so that his naked feet showed through the blankets at the bottom. The naked feet of the Christ pointed downwards to his head. He had been shot through the lungs and was dying of pneumonia, sending out his breath in fierce, rapid jerks. He lay on his side with his back towards us, and his face was hidden from us as we came in. The sister who sat with him made a sign that said, Oh, yes, you can come in, all of you. It will make no difference. The cell was so small that Jevons and I had to draw back and let Viola go in by herself. We two stood in the doorway and looked in. After the first glance at the bed, it was enough for me, I looked. I couldn't help looking at Viola. Jevons, I noticed, kept his eyes fixed on the body of the dying man. I heard her catch her breath in a sob before she could have seen him. He had slipped his blankets from his shoulder, and it was the sight of his back under the half-open hospital shirt which showed the bandages and dressings of his wound that upset her. His back that might have been any man's back, the innocent back that she had no memory of, that disguised and hid him from her, and made him strange to her and utterly pathetic. And then there was the back of his head, sunk like lead into his pillow. The cropped hair had begun to grow. You could see a little grayish tuft. You wouldn't have known that it was Charlie's head. She went slowly round the bed, taking care not to graze the feet that were stretched out to her. And then she saw him. She saw a deep purplish flush and glazed eyes that couldn't see her and a grayish beard pointing on an unshaved jaw and a mouth half open jerking out its breath. She laid her left hand on his shoulder and with her right she held the limp hand that hung over the mattress. I heard her say in French, if only he knew me, and the nun, perhaps at the end he will know you. And we left her there with his hand in her right hand and her left hand on his shoulder. She was on her honor to stay with him till the end, but her eyes were fixed on Jevons, and they followed him as he went through the doorway of the cell. The very minute he had left her, Jimmy made his bolt for Lokeren. He said he didn't want me, but I had seen Viola's eyes, and I said it would be safer. If I took Viola's car in Colville, she couldn't follow us. She won't follow us, he said. She can't leave him. We made the first bolt into Lokeren together. 
and we got out, each with a load of wounded, just as the Germans were coming in. He made his second bolt by himself and secretly, while Colville and I were lunching. We followed and were stopped in a village two miles from Lokeren. A Belgian Red Cross man met us here and told us that Jevons had got through in spite of them, and they didn't in the least expect him to come back again. He shrugged his shoulders and seemed to be disgusted and annoyed with Jimmy, rather than to admire him. We hung about in that village an interminable time. I do not remember its name, if I ever knew it, but I know and remember every house in it, and every tree in the avenue at the turn of the grey road that led to Lokeren, and even now in my worst dreams I find myself in the little plantation at the end of the village on the left, where the railway siding is, and where the trains came in loaded with wounded. I am always waiting for Jimmy, and looking for Jimmy, and not finding him, and at one point I always stumble over Viola's body. I find her lying wounded in a ditch that runs through the plantation, and when I find her I know that Jimmy is dead, and that frightens me, Jimmy's death, I mean, not Viola's body. I take Viola's body as a matter of course. It is an abominable dream. But even that dream is not more astonishing, and it is far less improbable than what I was to see. We were at the end of the village. Colville had drawn our car up in the middle of the street, and I was standing by him when two Belgian soldiers rushed up to us, pointing up the road and shouting to Colville to clear out of the way. I turned. Round the bend of the road where the avenue of trees was, I saw a train of horses and gun carriages careening with a curve, and a battery of Belgian artillery came charging down in full retreat, and now in the middle of the battery, as if he were a part of it, and informed it with his energy and speed, and now in front of it, as if he led it, and joyous as if he had turned its retreat into a victory, came Jimmy driving his car. The inside of the car was packed with wounded men, and, wedged up against Jimmy and standing on the steps and sitting on the bonnet, and hanging on wherever they could find a foothold and hang were seven officers and soldiers of the belgian army kendall bleeding profusely from a flesh wound on his forehead but otherwise unhurt sat inside among the wounded it had been a victory for jimmy he had advanced within fifty yards of the german lines he had picked up two of his wounded from under their sentry's fire and the rest of the men and the officers he had gathered on his way we sent them all to ghent with colville before he left, Kendall implored us just to look at Mr. Jevons's car. Mr. Jevons's car was worth looking at. It had a hole in the back of it where a bullet had gone clean through and buried itself in the cushions. There were five bullet holes in its hood. Its flank was scraped by a flying fragment of shell, the same that had tilted its right rear splashboard. Inside, its canvas covers and its rubber mat were stained with blood drawn up motionless in that village street and stared at jimmy's car had something of its old self-conscious air it looked pleased and at the same time surprised at itself and while jevons was dressing and bandaging his flesh wound for him an idea struck kendall and he grinned do you remember the time sir when you wouldn't let her out if there was a spot of rain i do said jevons and look at her now not three weeks what a life she's had and when kendall he was as pleased as punch with his bandage. When Kendall had climbed into Colville's car, Jimmy turned his round again. Though the officers implored him to come on, for the Germans were on our backs. But Jimmy only jerked his thumb in the direction of Lokeren and made his third bolt. I scrambled in beside him as he started.
End of Book Three, Chapter Fourteen, Part One. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.